0: Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through our statement of faith, which we have adopted the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. And we are in Chapter 1, which is of the Scriptures. Now, if you haven't figured this out yet, I give you like an additional minute because I'm introducing the same thing every time for anybody who listens to this on Sermon Audio. So you guys here locally can go get a donut, whatever, you know, when I'm saying that stuff because you've heard it before. At any rate, we are working our way through... We are working our way through Chapter 1 of the Scriptures, and as part of that, um, we get into this section on English Bible Translations, and that's where we uh, have been for the last couple of weeks, kind of camped out in that section, because there's a lot of material for us to cover, a lot of us to, for us to look at. And so, we are now in this section where we we're talking about, and if you call this last week, I'll give you the official name of the title, we're in, well, as I said, we're already in translations, English translations. Um, but we're talking specifically now about the standard for how, tr- how the scriptures are translated and how that actually applies to today's translations. Now, just to make sure that we're not missing this, I mean, I don't want to use language that somebody doesn't understand, the Bible that you have in your hand or on your seat or in front of you in the pew or you see in somebody else's hand is a translation, right? So it's a translation because the original was not written in English. Even though it looks like it in the movies, all of the apostles of Jesus did not speak English, right? So they wrote, the original autographs were written in Greek uh, for the New Testament, obviously Hebrew for the Old Testament, a little bit of Aramaic in the New Testament. But uh, those original autographs, which are what they're called, the original, the first edition writing that they wrote by hand, those are gone. There has been copies and copies and copies and copies made, And from those copies, we have a translation into English, right? Now, as we've talked through the doctrines, and specifically the doctrine of providential preservation of scriptures and verbal plenary inspiration of scriptures, both of those doctrines are necessary for us to believe that God's word is still God's word, right? If it's not, it's the rumors of God's word. Does that make sense? In other words, if the Bible that we have is not what was originally given, which part is accurate? We don't know. Right? Well, yeah, but such and such a pastor, he said that this part, how does he know? How do I know? How do any of us know? We don't. There is a problem if we don't believe that God has preserved his word. Now, this has happened even in the scripture. So, Ultimately, our authority for these doctrines has to be the Scripture, right? It can't just be, well, you know what? We believe that it happened this way, and so we made up this doctrine to cover it. Are you with me on this? In other words, if we say, well, we know that we have God's Word today, then we must believe in providential preservation. Too much has happened. Too much has happened. Do, do you remember any time in the Old Testament, where the king found the book of the law? And there was great celebration that he found the book of the law? What king was it? Who remembers? Josiah. That was an easy one. <laughs> yeah, he's an advantage there, that's right. Josiah. Josiah. <laughs> So, Josiah found the book of the law. What does that mean? It wasn't readily available. Does that make sense? The The celebration was, is it was gone. The nation of Israel had gone so far into apostasy that they no longer had the Bible. It was hidden. There were copies, but they were preserved and set to the side. And the king celebrated. Guess where the copy was that he found? Where was it? Anybody know? They found the book of the law. Where did they find it? where was it it was in the temple exactly they found it in the temple surprise (laughs) it was in the temple now what happened after that they made copies scripture tells us this so it's not like we haven't seen God's providential preservation of his word even in scriptures we have we have when Rome destroyed Jerusalem was the Bible lost no no, it still existed. It was in other copies around the world. Synagogues all over. That did not end God's word. So we've seen these things happen through the scriptures themselves, but we know since then, I mean, so here would be the thing. And this is a pretty logical argument, even if it's not entirely based on scripture. If God wanted his church to have his word, what good would it do if it was destroyed in the first century? Why would he even give it? right? That that wouldn't make any sense. When we see all these instructions to the church, we see all these instructions to us as individuals, how we have to have, be able to have access to them. Otherwise, how do you know? You don't know, right? All you really know is what somebody said. And this isn't the telephone game for 2000 years. So verbal plenary inspiration is the other aspect of that. So if God's going to give his word, is he going to give ideas or is he going to tell us the way it is? I mean, if you think about this, when Christ gives the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, he, I shouldn't say he says, but let's say he redefines or makes clear what truly sin is in some areas, this is a shock to the people that heard it. He says, look, if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Now, that was never the case before, right? At least not according to the law. Now, you know, just like we know today, that if you're thinking bad things about other people, you're sinning in your heart, right? If you think, I would just run that guy off the road, cut me off like that, you're sinning in your heart. You're sinning in your heart. Boy, some people are like, there he goes, beat me up again. (laughs) But you understand this is the case, right? But it wasn't in the Old Testament, it didn't say that. So Christ says, let's make this clear. And he explains, right? If you thought against, about doing violence against your brother, you are sinning. You're guilty, just as if you'd have committed the sin. Now, you can say, well, you know, there's, we can understand there's ideas of that in the Old Testament. Really? Okay, well, that's really easy to say. 2,000 years of commentary down the road. But the Jews at the time did not believe that. They didn't believe that. They didn't think that the thoughts were sins unless the bible specifically said so the old testament so when christ says this in what is he doing he's clarifying he's clarifying why they didn't get it on their own you see this they didn't get it on their own christ had to tell them and then he preaches to the to the crowds he teaches his disciples they plant churches was that it perfect no, we see all these letters, right? To churches, to believers in general. And what are they all saying? Don't do this, do this. If you have this situation, this is how you deal with it. All of this additional instruction is needed. Why? Because people don't just get it. They have to be told. And you know, there's two parts to that, right? One is willing and one is unwilling. So you either willingly ignore and pretend that you don't see the truth in something, or unwittingly, you don't know the truth of something, right? So the Bible lays it out. If God did not verbally, plenarily, in other words, every word of every part of the Scripture, dictate the Scripture, how do we know that part is true? Which part did they fill in? Which part didn't they? We don't know. We either have to believe it's all God's word or it's not God's word. Right? So this, com- now, now that all applies to the Greek. And that's the first level. Because the next level is, is that somebody has to take the Greek and put that into English. And I don't know about you, but it's not the same language. I don't know if you knew that or not. Common phrase is, that's what to me? I don't understand. That's what to me. What? Greek to me. Why? We don't understand it. We don't understand it. Latin, at least, is a little easier. Because Latin, there's a lot of words that our words are actually kind of a, got their origination in Latin. And so somebody will say a Latin word, and you're like, oh, yeah, that kind of sounds like that. Sometimes. <laughs> a lot of times it doesn't. But Greek is definitely a different language. It's a language that we don't cannot readily understand. So it must be translated into the vulgar tongue, and that's what the Confession talks about. As we be put into the common language of the people. So when we talk about English Bible translations, we're talking about a number of different things here. First is that God's word was directly inspired by him, word for word. Second, he then preserved his word through the centuries and through the millennia now. Preserve that word. And then third, where we're at now, is talking about the translation of that Greek into English. Now we're working our way through, we talked about translation philosophies, there was formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. What are the differences? We talked about it last week, I'm just mentioning again because it's going to come up really quick here. Formal equivalence is word for word. It's trying to translate it exactly as it is in the Greek to English. Now what has to happen naturally and necessarily is that the words have to get rearranged. Why? If you've ever studied a foreign language, you know almost every foreign language uses wording in a different way than we do. They're not in the same order. They're not in the same order. So we think, you know, that we would have like a noun and a verb and some adjectives thrown in there, right? But a lot of times that's not the way they work. Foreign languages might start with an action word, right? So I might say... I'm walking to the lectern. But in a foreign language, it, may, it might say, walking lectern was I. Do You see the difference? So for us to understand the meaning, the translators take word for word, and they try to rearrange it in a way that makes sense. Then, if you've read the King James, you see that in some verses, don't you? Where it's not exactly in the order that we would normally put it. I'm just talking about the order now. So that has to be done. It has to be translated. That's formal equivalence. Word for word, trying to stay as close to the original as they possibly can. Dynamic equivalence is not that. Dynamic equivalence is thought for thought. Dynamic equivalence is saying, this passage says this, or this phrase says this. I'm going to put it in words that people can understand. I'm going to use different words. Now, as we've talked about many times, this is a huge problem. And the reason it's a huge problem is because the translator in this case is determining what God meant. He's not only translating, he's interpreting. If you've, ever read a pa- if you've ever read one passage of Scripture, one, and it meant something to you different another time, like one time you read it and you saw this, another time you read it and you saw this, you just proved that dynamic equivalence is bad. Because if the translator had translated that, into the first way you thought, you would have never seen the second way. Why? Because those words aren't there. The words aren't there. That's dynamic equivalent. So those are the two translation philosophies. So then we look at how does those translation philosophies then apply, and that's where we're at. How do those apply to the translations today? All right. So this is what we were talking about just now. See how I had to bring that up because here it is. So F-E and D-E, that's the... Uh, abbreviations for formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. So, in formal equivalence, the word is the basic unit. In dynamic equivalent, the thought is the basic unit. Does this make sense? Because they're working on the thought, and formal is working on the word. Formal equivalence retains the grammatical form. Dynamic equivalent is contemporary form is dominant. Dynamic equivalent do not change every passage and every verse and every phrase. It doesn't. Because in some passages, the Greek is the same for both, right? It's clear. It's just there's a lot that is not clear. FE interpretation is minimum. DE interpretation is the goal. So in, in an FE, the translator is trying to do make it exactly what it was originally. They have to change some things. They have to make it so that we... Understand, we have, that's why sometimes if you're reading your Bible and you'll see there is like some words in italics, like maybe it's is or the or something like this, that's because there was no word in the Greek, but for us to understand the concept, they add those words in there so that we get it. You understand? Because in Greek, it didn't need that. In Greek, if you were, you were reading it and you understood Greek, you would understand what it means. So they had to do that. So what's the goal? The goal is to do that in a minimum way. In DE, interpretation is the goal. It's that we want people to understand it, and if they don't understand it today, we must change the words so that they understand it. That's the goal. Scripture does teach that the very words and sometimes the letters written were given to the writers by God. We've seen this. We looked at some verses for that last time. F.E. is based on the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Why? Well, because if God gave every single word, what do we want to translate? Every single word. We don't want to decide what God meant. D.E. is based on a modern philosophy. In other words, the translator's personal views as well as his views of modern society. Now, we read the... uh, NIV Translator's Guide, the preface to the Today's English Version. We read those uh, last week, I think it was, maybe it was a week before. But I did read those, and if you remember in those, that it talked about figuring out what the passage meant to those it was addressed to, and then what would be needed to make today's reader have the same response, feel the same way. There's a whole lot of leeway there, isn't there? Not very specific, kind of vague, right? So if Christ says something, and in his time, the translator believes that that would have made people feel happy, right? That 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 statement would have made the people that heard it happy, He's going to try to make sure that that same statement will make believers happy today. Can you see any problem with that? Uh, Kind of big problems, right? Like, first of all, who's to say that they felt happy? Who's to say that they felt unhappy? Now, this is a common thing that pastors do all the time. You have to be very careful when you hear a pastor say this. Understand what they're trying to tell you. I say, yeah, when this happened, this person felt like this. And the scripture doesn't say it. Right? Scripture doesn't say it. Let me give you an example, just popped on my head. Bathsheba. All right, Bathsheba. Right? I have heard a pastor say Bathsheba was taking the bath on her roof because she wanted to tempt men. Really. So that preacher understood something that wasn't in the scripture which was that she had malice in her heart that she was actually trying to sin the bible doesn't tell us that at all can we possibly know that no no can't know it can't know it and in the end in the story doesn't really matter david's the one who sinned not Bathsheba, not then she did but not then right but you understand you don't understand what I'm saying. In other words, they're reading into the scripture and they're saying what people thought. If this, you know. when Stephen preached, famous message in Acts, do we know how the audience responded? Yes, we do, because it tells us how they felt, and then we see the actions of how they felt. Right. So that's very clear. We can say with authority, because the Scripture tells us this is how they felt. But that's rare in the Scripture. That's rare in the Scripture. Most of the time, we're making extrapolations. Right? Mount of Transfiguration. Peter says, let us build an altar to you three. Right? Elijah, Moses, and Christ. Let us build an altar here to you. Right? Now, was that because Peter was so overjoyed at seeing them? Was that because he kind of resorted to an Old Testament philosophy of the way that you worship is to build an altar when they're right there? Was that the proper response? Was that not the proper response? Was he sinning? Was he not sinning? Not important to the story. We know he said it. We know he was told no. Why would we put more words? Why would we come up with thoughts? What he thought? We don't need to. If we needed to, the Bible would tell us. Right? So this is the difficulty. In a dynamic equivalent translation, the translator has to assume as well as he can what the response was of the people that received that. Now, understand, that's... Almost impossible. Because we're not talking about what the people thought in a passage of scripture. We're talking about what people thought when that passage of scripture was read. What did the church of Galatia think when they got a letter from Paul? That's not recorded in Scripture. Are you with me? It's not recorded in Scripture. How did they respond to those things? How did the church in Corinth respond? Hey, you think it's gonna be different than the church in Galatia? Yeah, it is. Why? Different people, different problems. Right? Different problem? How do we know that? Because Paul addresses some issues in Galatians, other issues in Corinthians. Right? So the translator in a DE has to come up with what he believes the people that heard this, or that the letter was written to in that example, how they responded. Then, he has to come up with another gargantuan assumption, and that is how you're going to respond. What can he say in those words that's going to make you respond the way that they responded? And just as impossible as the first part is, is impossible for the second part. Why? Do you think that, it, look, what I'm saying right now, you're all gonna respond differently. You're all gonna, in your, in your minds right now, like I, on your faces, I could tell you, you're all responding differently. Oh, you know, there's a lot of people the same. Most of them are like, get on. No. Everybody responds differently. We can agree with this, right? In fact, Think about the job of the translator to come up with this. This is, like, beyond reasonable to even think they could do this. Let me just ask a question. Those of you that have been married, you've been with your spouse for years. Do you know how she's going to respond every time? No. You don't know how she's going to respond that You don't know how your husband's going to respond every time. Isn't this true? Like, you think that they'll respond this way, but then they didn't respond that way. And you know that better than anybody. How can the translators know how you're going to respond or how she's going to respond or how... Your son or your daughter or your neighbor anybody else is going to respond. They don't. They're going to make an assumption based on what they think the culture is. Wow. That's hard, isn't it? You see a problem there? I could see big problems. All right. DE is fully in sync with modern movements of revisionist history, outcome-based theology, and man-centered truth. Now, why do we say that? Well, just think about the way all of these are. The idea of revisionist history, outcome-based theology, and man-centered truth is all based on one thing, getting what we want. We don't like the way history looks? Let's change it. How? Well, how can great men come up with a great document if they had slaves? Hmm. Who had slaves? George Washington? Thomas Jefferson. A lot of the founding fathers had slaves. Now that's beyond the fact that Washington freed all his slaves at his death. Jefferson freed all his slaves before he was died, before he died. Doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with now the movement is diminish those founding fathers because they were evil slaveholders. They had this horrible sin. Did they? be careful we're not talking Uncle Tom's cabin does the Bible condemn slavery <laughs> ah, that tricky isn't it does the Bible not give us instructions for how to treat a slave and how a slave should respond to a master it does it does There's a difference between indentured servitude, right, and outright slavery. Hmm? Outright slavery would be man-stealing. Indentured slavery is when you willingly become a slave, like even somewhat unwillingly, like slave because of debt, right? Or what happened with indentured servants when they came to the colonies originally, People would actually would be willing to serve as a slave for somebody who is coming to the New World, in exchange for which, at the end of that period, they would receive something. Whether it's money, whether it's property, whatever it was, they would willingly come and do this. So this is how a lot of people came over. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the money to buy land. They didn't have the money for the trip. So they would sign on to do this, and the people that had money liked this, because now this gives them a chance to start getting their land going and everything. And all they gotta do is give that person some when they're done. Right? Willingly went into it. But that's we're getting I'm going down the rabbit trail here. <laughs> the point is that revisionist history seeks to change the past based on current philosophies and desired outcomes. And this is the same with outcome based theology and man centered truth. Now, this becomes a huge problem. Why? Because in an outcome-based theology, you're basically making your theology based on how you're going to get people to respond, right? Can you see a problem there? First of all, God doesn't change. He can't. You can't say, well, you know, God said that this is a sin, but, you know, we know that today he wouldn't call that a sin. How do we know this? Not in the Bible. So how do we know that? We don't know that. But those people that believe in outcome-based theology would simply say, well, look, isn't the goal for us to just have people that love each other more? No, that's not the goal. That's not the goal What the Bible says. That's not what Christ said. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart. That's the greatest commandment. That's the whole purpose of duty of man. Love God and serve him forever. That's our duty. It's not that we're nice people. And if anybody has a, wonders about that, just look around the world. It's full of not nice people. Man-centered truth, same concept. What do we do? We base it on what we think is true. Well, what if it's not true? Well, it's true because we said it's true. You know, that's called circular reasoning. You can't actually believe that that's true. Except that most people today don't have a problem with it. Why? Well, let me just ask you a question. How many of you were taught circular-based reasoning in school? How many of you were taught logic in school? Not many. Some were. But most of that you'd get from your parents. Right? Or you'd learn it on your own. Because they certainly don't teach that. Critical thinking is what that's called. We don't teach that in schools, and we haven't for decades and decades. Not taught. So people don't think through things. They have a hard time putting together this concept that if and then. like It's like uh, algebra. I don't know if you remember algebra, but it's algebra, essentially, right? So if this is carpet and I'm standing on the carpet, I therefore like to stand on carpet. That's not true. How do you get that out of that statement, right? Does that make sense? But if I say, I'm trying to use a donut example. (laughs) Donuts are good. Brian likes donuts. Donuts. Therefore, Brian would like to have a donut. This is true. <laughs> but you understand, the this is not a good example. But anyway, any rate, man-centered truth says that's not true. That's not true. Why? Well, it's true if you think it's true. That's the emerging church. The Bible is only the Bible if you think it's the Bible. That's the emerging church movement. Why? Well, if you don't believe that that's the Bible, then it's not the Bible for you. The Bible for you is whatever you think is the Bible. Okay. That's so un- impossibly silly. It's almost, it's like, man, talk about turkey shooting. I mean, this is not even turkey shooting. This is like, you know, dropping bowling balls on water balloons. I mean, you're not going to miss. You know what I'm saying? Uh, actually, the water balloon could kind of Anyway, you know, <laughs> my point is, is that... Uh, You cannot believe in gravity, it's still real. You cannot believe you'll die if you jump off the Empire State Building, but you will die. Just because you doesn't believe it doesn't mean it's true. In fact, there are a whole lot of things that are true that you have to believe. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. Are you with me on this? So to say that the Bible is not the Word of God unless you believe it's the Word of God is just a completely false statement. It either is or is not the Word of God, whether you think so or not. You understand? Like, this is not even going down the path of if it's the Word of God. It's just an illogical statement. It either is or isn't, whether you believe it or not. Right? So you see, when we get into this, I mean, isn't this something? We're having this philosophical class and we're talking about translation of scriptures. But it's important, because obviously you see this modern philosophies that we're talking about right here saturating our culture. Saturating our culture. Accuracy and truth are not as important as opinion. If so, this, Where do you think transgenderism comes from? If you feel like you're the other gender, then you are the other gender what sorry check the chromosomes You can't change it no matter what kind of treatments they have you can't change the chromosomes change the chromosomes you're dead can't change it you are what you are you may not accept it but it's still true with me here's another axiom if you try to work on your car it's not going to go as you expect (laughs) <laughs> no, we're <not> that bad. <laughs> All right. When we apply the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration to translation philosophies, it's clear that the formal equivalent translation philosophy is the only acceptable method for English Bible translation. Do you see that? I, this is, I beat this up a lot in the last week and not today. If we go by dynamic equivalent translations, there's no way that you can predict what you're going to get. And in fact... We're going to work through them now individually. But you'll see, dynamic equivalent translations are continuously changing. They must. Why? Because the goal of the translator is to get a response from the reader like the response that they believe the original reader said. So if our culture changes, they must change the scripture. See? All right. Textual criticism. Well, what is textual criticism? It's the process of attempting to ascertain the original wording of a text. So textual criticism in itself is a good thing. It's trying to determine the original wording of a text. Without the original autographs, that's the handwritten first copy, that the writers originally penned, we only have copies of copies of the original. Are you with me on this? Copies of copies. And then we talked about papyrus. We talked about vellum and other stuff. English translations will only ever be as good as the quality of the Hebrew and Greek text that the translators are able to use. Now, does that make sense? If you have a bad copy and you're translating it, you're going to have a bad translation. You have a good copy and you translate it. You could have a good, copy, good translation or a bad translation, but at least you have a chance of having a good translation. You with me on that? You have to start with a good text. Modern crit- textual criticism... So, textual criticism, defined it, this is it. Modern textual criticism is a product of the Enlightenment and its presupposition that man is the source of knowledge. So, therefore, man should question and determine the truth of all things. So, modern textual criticism says that if we read this, and this does not say what we believe it should have said, it's not true. We should change it. Now, if you're talking about a science textbook a history book, whatever, and you're trying to be true to the science or true to the history, that's a good thing, right? Like, let's say... This is not true. But let's say that we had textbooks in the United States that said the earth was flat. Right? And then we determined that the earth wasn't flat, which we know from Job, the oldest book in the Bible. At any rate, we determined that the earth is not flat, and so therefore... Textual criticism says this isn't true, therefore we must change the text, right? Now, that would be true, except that's not 100% true because modern or textual criticism is really about old works. It's about old works, right? So in other words, you're going back and you're looking at something that was written 500 years ago, and you want to know what this person was saying right here, and you're not sure what this person was saying. Textual criticism would be, we're going to use methods to determine exactly what he said. Like maybe you have two copies of a document that someone wrote. Think the Iliad and the Odyssey. Two copies only existing of that document, and they don't agree. You with me? What do you do? You got two copies, and there's some parts that aren't the same, which is totally true. What I'm saying right now is totally true. What do you do? Well... Textual criticism would be we need to try to determine which one of these is accurate, right? Modern textual criticism would say we need to look at what the differences and determine which one we think is true, and that's the one that's right. Is that true? No, you don't know if that's true because just because you don't like the idea that they're criticizing a certain behavior, like let's say, for instance, homosexuality, So you say, well, this one can't be true because he's criticizing homosexuality. That doesn't mean that it's not true. Maybe that's still what he wrote. You with me? Okay. Okay. The Hebrew Old Testament text. Well, there was and is widespread agreement that the Masoretic text is the true Old Testament text. There are some that still question this today, but there is almost universal acceptance that it is the original Hebrew text. This is the text that was preserved in the synagogues. This is the text that was cared for by the Nazarites. I have Numbers 6, 1 through 21. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. You can certainly write that down and turn to it anytime you want to. But Numbers 6, 1 through 21 explains what what someone has to do or go through to become a Nazarite. Now, you've seen this before. You've heard of this. And, of course, this is a little bit difficult because there's, like, the, uh, you'll, you'll see a hymn about Jesus the Nazarene, and you'll see uh, the church of, the Na- of Nazarene. And this is, there's a difficulty here because you don't want to conf- conf- uh, confuse somebody who's from Nazareth with someone who's taken the vow of a Nazarite. Are you with me on this? So the vow of a Nazarite is nothing to do with Nazareth. For all I know, they could have named the town after the idea of a Nazarite. I don't know that. But what my point is, is that it's not the same thing. So don't get distracted by that. A Nazarite is one who was basically set aside for service to God. Now, what you don't hear talked about too often is what was the primary role of the Nazarites? Anybody know? Do I already say that? (laughs) There's a hint right there. Look at the slide. The scripture was cared for by the Nazarites. It was their job to ensure the integrity of God's word in the Old Testament. Now, did they become apostate? Yeah, absolutely they did. But that was their original intention. And they came back up and they went back down. And they came back up and they went back down. This definitely happened, but that was what their whole job was. A heretical view has emerged claiming that the Septuagint, also known as LXX, which is 70, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, is the true Old Testament. Now, this is a problem. Why is it a problem? Well, the Septuagint includes the Apocrypha. It includes the Apocrypha. They say, well, i got a copy of the Septuagint. It doesn't include it. Well, it did. Originally, it had the Apocrypha. The other problem is is that the Jews rejected the Septuagint. They did not accept it. Josephus writes on this, other famous Jews wrote on this they never accepted the septuagint why they had preserved the scripture in the masoretic text it does not match it's not the only place we're talking about the apocrypha not the only place it varies from the masoretic text in many other or many passages there's differences do we care we sure should do we want to know god's word or do we want to know what somebody said was god's word Greek New Testament. There are two distinct versions of the New Testament Greek text: the Textus Receptus and the modern critical text. Well, that's the two primary ones. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Majority text that'll come into it. But we're going to talk about this because this is where the confusion is today. So there's not any question: Masoretic and Septuagint is an issue. But even most Bibles are made from, are actually translated from the Masoretic text. Most Bibles are not translated from the Septuagint. A few are, not many. Most of them are from the Masoretic text. The New Testament translations are where the issues are with translations today, and has been for a while, about 160 years. All right, so most differences between these texts, the Textus Receptus and the Modern Critical Text, are not substantial. Some are quite serious. Two distinct approaches to New New Testament textual criticism have been employed, which has resulted in two different printed texts of the New Testament Greek. And you can imagine what those two things are. Regardless of the translation philosophy used, whether it's formal equivalence or dynamical equivalence, the orig, origin or source of the Greek to be translated is very significant. Now here's a booklet. If you get this booklet, it's available on Amazon other places. A textual key to the New Testament lists 575 important differences that affect our English translation between those two Greek texts, the modern critical text and the Texas Receptus. Are there more than 575? There's a lot more than 575. These 575 are doctrine-changing differences. So do you think they're important if they change doctrines? Well, they are. Textual criticism in the Texas Receptus is limited to possible mistakes in copying or typesetting. The text itself is not questioned. Textual criticism is still applied today to the Texas Receptus. But the actual... Words are not question; It's a question of, did something happen here? Why why is this different in this new piece of ancient script that we found? Textual criticism of the modern critical text is the basis of its creation. Modification and its future. It's treated scholastically like any other historic text. Let me give you an example. You find a new... Was it last year or two years ago? Last year or two years ago. A new Greek text was found. Small. It's only a portion of a book. A few pages. Right? But it contradicts both the textus receptus and the modern critical text. It's got things in it that are different. Now, considering that we have literally 6,000 pieces and copies, ancient copies, of the Scripture you would think that a new fragment that's found that doesn't match either one would be discarded, not counted. For the Texas receptus, that is true. It's discounted. But for the modern critical text, they changed the new Greek to match that. Why? Because the ideas in that fragment were closer to today's culture than it was then. And they liked it. Wow. Really? Yeah. Just think. That means that if you write something today, and yours is one of the few fragments of documents that are found a thousand years from now, they might take what you wrote as the true scripture. That's what we're talking about. Textual criticism. I'm sorry, read that. We must determine which Greek version is the best to determine which English translations are the best the others must be considered inferior, right? I mean, if one is the true word of God or is closest to the true word of God, another one is not, that one has to be inferior. Would you agree with me on that? That's a pretty basic statement, right? All right, textus receptus. We're going to talk about each of them now. Textus receptus. First of all, that's Latin for the received text. That's Latin for the received text. Texas receptus. Remember I said, look, you can see the words. You kind of think, oh, I can kind of see that. Textus means text. Receptus means received. Right, exactly. It's based on the Byzantine text. The Eastern or Greek-speaking church has continually used this text, this Greek text, since at least the 4th century until the Reformation. So the Eastern Orthodox Church continued to use this. So this, think about this for a second. You have a church, one of the major branches of the church, that speaks Greek is using this version of the Greek. You think that matters? There's no translation here. Are you with me on this? They are actually using the Greek. Well, the Textus Receptus is based on that. Because of its preservation, it's also called the traditional text, or the ecclesiastical text. That's, what, that's other references to the same text. It is the text type found in 90% of the existing Greek manuscripts, which is why it's called the majority text. Now, we're going to talk about majority text for a minute, but not today. We're going to talk about that next week. So, Texas Receptus was originally called Majority Text. The move today is to change Majority Text to actually mean the modern critical text. Why would they do that? Well, Majority Text is a pretty convincing argument right off the bat, isn't it? Like, if most of the Greek manuscripts match this one, this probably is the one. Right? So, there's an effort to rebrand Most of the existing manuscripts are from the 9th to the 14th century. That's what we're talking about. Many of the distinct readings of the Byzantine text are attested to by the papyri manuscripts from the 2nd and 3rd century. So things that are different in the Byzantine text than the modern critical text, most of those things are actually attested to by the oldest papyri that we have. Doesn't match the modern critical, but it does match the Byzantine. Erasmus used this as the basis for the first printed edition of the Greek New Testament in 1516 directly from the Greek church. Now, Erasmus, we could do class, several classes on Erasmus just to talk about who he was and what he did and how he came up with his translation. We don't have time. Too much detail. So we're not going to go down that path. This is a good summary of Erasmus. It's a whole life in one sentence there. It doesn't seem right. But at any rate, <laughs> further editions were published by Stephanus, four editions. Then Beza, Ten editions. The Elzevir brothers published a 1633 edition in which the preface included the phrase Textus Receptus. Specifically, they said, you have therefore the text now received by all, in which we give nothing altered or corrupt. The, the, The brothers were a publishing house. They did not translate or anything like that. They took the text that was already been received by the church. It was the same text that Erasmus had done, and they said that this is the received text. Textus Receptus, that's where it comes from. It was accepted by all branches of the church in the Reformation. Interesting. All branches of the church in the Reformation, all the branches that came out of the Reformation, all accepted the Texas Receptus as the scripture. The Texas Receptus was recognized by all Protestants as the authentic New Testament text and the canonical standard. So it wasn't just, you know, when I say all the branches of the church, it's not just the Reformed churches. The Greek church viewed this way. Same text. They viewed it. It replaced the Latin Vulgate for the true church. The Vulgate was produced by the Roman Catholic Church. The Latin Vulgate changed. The Latin Vulgate, by the way, has also changed continuously. The Latin Vulgate is not set. It continues to change. So an old copy of the Latin Vulgate is not the same as a new copy of the Latin Vulgate. They've changed it. Why? Well, because they changed their doctrine. Wycliffe's first English translation was based on the Texas Receptus, as was Tyndall's translation from and the Geneva Bible, all based on the Texas Receptus. It is the basis of the authorized King James Version of 1611, which is the most influential English translation ever produced. There's no translations that will ever reach the number of King James Bibles that have been printed. It's impossible, because there's been so many for hundreds of years. It's impossible. So it's easy to make that statement. All right, the modern critical text. Currently, the modern critical text is represented by the United Bible Society's fifth edition of the Greek New Testament, and that's the Allen 28th edition of Novum Testamentum Gracie. So, if you use a Greek dictionary, (laughs) a couple of you, this is going to hit now, if you use a Greek dictionary, and it's one of these two editions that that has a translation, you know, word for word, Greek, English, right? That's what these are. You're using modern critical text, not Texas Receptus. Interesting, the latest editions, by the way, I looked these up on their sites last night because I wanted to confirm it. The latest editions were changed principally in the Catholic Epistles. The Catholic Epistles? <laughs> making them consistent with the Roman Catholic Church of DTO, God Major. The last change, which, by the way, the slide that I had from five years ago was the fourth edition and the 27th edition. So I made. I want to make sure I had it up to date, and I didn't. So I updated it, and I was like, well, what changes did they make? Well, that was real clear. That was easy. You can see that on Wiki. You can see that on Get Answers. You can see that wherever you go. It's the same place everywhere. This is why they did it. Work on the modern critical text initially began in 1775. Now, you're going to see when we get to a little bit later. We're going to talk about uh, Westcott and Hoare. We're going to talk about Vaticanus, Sinaiticus. We're going to talk about all these different things. And when we do, you're going to see that those actually came to light in the late 1800s. So what work started in 1775? Good question. There was a couple of manuscripts that did not agree with the Texas Receptus. And there were those who saw something in those that they liked better than the Texas Receptus, even then. So what did they do? started trying to come up with a way that they could justify that. This is when it started. Product of scholars, the modern critical text is, employing canons or rules of textual criticism on text types to decide which reading is most true, making the work of the textual critic the central element of determining the modern critical text. In other words, they come up with rules, and they apply those rules as they go, and that means that the person that's applying the rules decides what God's Word says. It's an eclectic text. Why? Because it's a combination of text types. In other words, you have a text type that's the Byzantine. All the Byzantine text types match. Then you have a few others. Those few others are incorporated in the modern critical text. You see any problems here so far? The vast majority of scriptures that survive, that are preserved, all match. A few don't. Let's base it on the few. That's what modern critical text is. The greatest weight is given to the Alexandrian text, but other obscure types are included, due to their age, 2nd to 4th century. These texts were found in the last 200 years. Solely due to its age, scholars declared it more authentic and declared the TR corrupt, even though it was in continuous use in the church and is 90% of the extant manuscripts. Claims that it's the oldest and therefore best manuscript. That's what they say about Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And I don't even have those words here, but that's what they are. Now, I'm going to tell you the story next week of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, where they, how they found them. But here's what I want to give you your takeaway. And this happens in Genesis a lot. and Branson will be preaching in Genesis. It happens particularly in the first two chapters. If you have a footnote in your Bible that says, the oldest and best texts say... You're warned. Because what they're talking about is the modern critical text. What they're saying is the scripture isn't right. Because the oldest and best says this, and it's different. And where do you see this? Well, you see it in the days of creation. Because the oldest and best, in their words, which is the Alexandrian text, don't say that they were days. They say they were a period of time. What does that lead to? The day-age theory. Every day of creation was millions of years. Heard this before? That's where that comes from. If your Bible has footnotes that say, the oldest and best texts say this, and it's a contradiction to what the verse says, your footnotes are based on the modern critical text. Can't say about the translation, because that depends on the book. Depends on the Bible. But if it says that, that's what they're talking about. They're using that language. Now, why is that bad? I mean, if it was found in the 2nd to the 4th century, doesn't that mean that it is the oldest? Doesn't that mean that it must be correct? Come back next week and I'll explain that to you. The modern critical text is an entirely new text constructed based on multiple families of text. It never existed in history. Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, the two primary sources of the modern critical text, are not complete they're not an entire bible parts were missing so the other parts were filled in from as many other texts as they could and the last resort was the byzantine text same one we use with the Texas receptus the church never had the modern critical text as its bible the church never accepted that it wasn't until the 19th century and then the 20th century that the church started accepting that as the word of god instead of the received text Let's close on word prayer.